get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AM Campaign. Justin, I know there's a lot of uh, news that we want to get to this episode, but I also know that you joined a bunch of our friends for a, a couple important events uh, this past week and uh, wanted to hear a bit about that. Yeah, this was a uh, really packed weekend for me, but in, in, in a good way. Uh, got a chance to support some of our friends and some organizations who the AND campaign is really close with. The first being the uh, the Jude uh, 3 Project, which is run by our friend uh, Lisa Fields, who was one of the people who was on our leader, the AND campaign leadership council. And she actually came to my church. So they were in Atlanta to throw the uh, Courageous Conversations uh, Conference, uh, which is a conference where uh, she brings in some of the brightest uh, theologians and academic Christian academics to talk about theology in the black church. And so it was it was a two day conference that just was awesome. Two days of panels and people really going back and forth. Uh, you got we got to see really thoughtful folks like Michael Edmondson, uh, Charlie Dates, uh, Kimini Yuan, Esau McCauley really dig into the theology and help people understand what we believe and why, which is always important because it's really about apologetics. And that was a great conference. I think Lisa did a really good job. Uh, and then uh, our friends from One Race, uh, we got to I got to go speak at the One Race 400 conference, which was kind of based on the fact that 400 years ago, the first slave ships touched American shores. And so we were really just talking about the role that the church has in fighting racial injustice and what we can do in a very practical way, but also uh, on a spiritual level to combat some of the things that are going on in America. And, and just letting people know that the church has a responsibility to speak on racial injustice and it needs to get going uh, as soon as possible. Yeah, that's wonderful. It was it was great to see so many friends getting uh, together. Uh, you know, also just to see the incredible, you know, thought leadership that was going on and the, the way that, uh, you know, what was being shared at Courageous Conversations in, in particular, I just saw a lot coming out from that, uh, how, how much it was, it was helping folks and, and giving people things, things to think about. Yeah. yeah so, so really incredible. It, it had social media lit up, man. I mean, people, people, and, and you have a chance if you go to, I think if you go to the Jude 3 project, if you go to their Facebook page or even the website, you have a chance to watch some of those conversations. People were really excited about it, but the great thing for the AND campaign is a lot of people involved in those conversations are people on our leadership council, like Corey Porter and folks like that. And it was just great to fellowship with them and see them and see those minds uh, and that faithfulness just at, at work. So it was good. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Uh, Justin, uh, like I said, we have quite a bit we want to get to. And, uh, you know, I think we want to open up the the show talking about the, the shootings that have taken place. And it's, you know, as I was preparing for this episode, you know, it, it just struck me again, A, how many times we've talked about shootings on, you know, the relatively brief history of the podcast, although I, I guess we, we've been doing this for a while now. But but, but second, just, you know, we're, we're going to talk primarily about Dayton and El Paso, and that's because they happen within about 24 hours of each other. But we had 
a shooting in Gilroy, California, uh, just like a week ago. And it seems like a whole other, like we now have to group shootings together by, you know, by the weekend, it seems, which it's just, it's striking. It's not normal. And yet it seems so pervasive. And so let's just open it up. I'll just try and lay out a bit of context. So I'm sure folks have been following the news. First, let's talk about El Paso, where uh, on Saturday morning, a 21-year-old with a powerful rifle went into a Walmart store, in a, uh, a store that was advertising back-to-school sales. And so authorities have estimated there were within between 1,000 and 3,000 people in the store at the time, including many family shopping for back-to-school supplies. The shooter walked in. The New York Times report says uh, he was stalking shoppers in the aisles in an attack that left, uh, at the time of this reporting, at least 20 people dead and 26 others wounded. We've seen statements from officials in Texas, Everyone from uh, Ted Cruz to Beto O'Rourke left the campaign trail and, and went back to El Paso, even though he's not, it's his home district. Uh, the shooter left behind. And of course, there's still, you know, investigation. And, you know, we, as always, we want to leave space for different kind of news to come out. But but this one seems seems pretty clear. The, 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 the killer wrote a manifesto. Uh, railing against immigration and announcing, quote, that this attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Obviously, rhetoric that that echoes uh, language that has come from the highest office in the land. In, In a pretty stark way, we have not only New York Times editorial board and sort of voices on the left identifying this as an act of of white nationalist white uh, 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 supremacist influenced terrorism, you also have people like Ted Cruz uh, doing the same thing. He tweeted this was explicitly an an act of uh, of white nationalist terrorism, uh, which is I understand the tendency on the left to to say, well, you know, where are we supposed to do uh, slap him on the back or whatever? But it's just it's just important to. To note that that is happening, uh, President Trump uh, spoke out about El Paso and also Dayton, which we'll get to, and he has expressed condolences. He has said, uh, spoken out against hate, as well as several members of his administration, and those calls have obviously met been met with some skepticism, and we'll talk about that. Just to you know, wrap up. Well, in Dayton, what we saw was uh, a Sunday morning. Uh, shooting, and I'm I'm sorry, that's just difficult to difficult to get through. Um, a Sunday morning shooting in Dayton, where a 24 year old man, not obviously motivated by ideology, although again there will be investigations that will take place, used an assault style rifle uh, when he opened fire in a busy entertainment district in Dayton. Uh, a shotgun was also found in his car. Both guns were purchased legally. Uh, he was wearing uh, a mask, body armor, uh, hearing protection, and he possessed a high-capacity magazine capable of holding 100 rounds. Uh, he killed nine people. Police responded within a minute. 
Um, and again, he, he was able to kill nine people and injure 27 others in that time frame uh, with the weapon that he had. Uh, this was this was the entertainment district of Dayton. People just out trying to have a good time. Our understanding is that he he killed his his, his sister, died in the in the assault, although she was not the first person killed. You know, additional news reporting will come out. I've been particularly struck just to, some some of these stories are just um, of, of folks who died in El Paso. The I believe twenty five year old mother who. Uh, who was shot protecting her her two month old baby? But we're seeing uh, stories come out of those who were killed in Dayton, and, and it's it's just it's just a lot to uh, a, a lot a lot to take in, and and you know I think it's important not to prescribe or sort of put limits on how people respond to these things. Uh, you know I think it's a it's a moral tragedy, it's a social tragedy. And, and and yes, I just think we do have to acknowledge it's a it's a political tragedy. It's it's um you know like go 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 back and watch the video of President Obama in the wake of Newtown Newtown. You watch that video and you think, oh, something's definitely going to be done now. I, I mean, like like who can who, who can reject the, this sort of the purity, sort of the the clarity of the response that. You know the president, uh, President Obama at the time had made, and sort of the clear sense that something has to be done. Like we just can't live in a country where people can walk in with high-powered rifles and shoot up kids. And, and of course, nothing significant has has gotten done in that time. And so, uh, Justin, uh, that, that's um, uh, I know that's quite a quite a setup, but I, I, I'm just interested in what, what what you've been what you've been thinking, how you've been processing things. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, yeah. How, how have you been thinking about uh, thinking about uh, this this recent spat of you know serious shootings where you know dozens have have died? Yeah, I, I think it's a time for leadership. Uh, if you look through American history, at times when we were really going through troubles, whether it was the Great Depression or whether we were going through a war, you had leaders who stepped up and reassured the people through action. Uh, who told the people where we were going, what we were going to do to fix it, and how we would get through it. This is a moment for that type of leadership. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't expect that type of leadership. We've come not to expect that type of leadership from our president. But it is a moment where especially Senate Republicans uh, can show that kind of leadership, not just by talking about it in tweets, and that's cute, but by, by actually doing something about it. Uh, for the Senate Republicans to take up a bill or to actually lead an effort to do something significant about violence in America could do a lot of healing uh, for America. Uh, both sides go back and forth on these issues and both sides lack credibility with the other. But for one to step up and do something that seems to be against their narrative would be great, greatly helpful right now. And so in, in addition to that, obviously, our prayers go out to all those who are impacted in El Paso and in Dayton in these shootings. Um, and and I'll, I'm never one of those that's going to act like prayer is ins- insignificant. Uh, I believe in the supernatural. I believe that there are things that can't. Uh, I'm not a materialist, so I believe that there, there are things outside of the material world that are a factor in this conversation. Uh, America is dealing with a spiritual and cultural um 
is uh, is dealing with a spirit and culture rather of violence right now that is bigger than any legislative measure. However, our prayers should be coupled with deliberate action. And so I kind of want to get into uh, what is what's called the Bipartisan Background Checked Act of uh, 2019. Now, this act was passed in February in the House of Representatives uh, by a vote of uh, 240 uh, for it and, and 190 people against it. Uh, it's been called it's called bipartisan. You can see that in the title. But only about eight Republicans in the House of Representatives have uh, signed on signed on to it. Um, the bill would require background checks on every gun sale and every gun transfer with only a few narrow, very narrow uh, exemptions. And that would be for from gifts, uh, you know, a gift from one family member to another when you have instances of, of clear self-defense or target shooting, things of that nature. And it would also close the gun show and Internet loopholes. And so when we talk about, you know, guns and, and kind of, you uh, getting some regulation around guns. You hear a lot about these gun show and internet loopholes where if people don't have to go through the same process of background checks and all that, if they get it over the internet. And, and in some situations there's loopholes at, at gun shows. Now it's important to understand that licensed dealers are already required to conduct background checks, but the act would also require unlicensed dealers to go through the same uh, process by actually making them deal with licensed dealers. Uh, right. So that would be another change that we would see in it. Um, now, these background checks are done through the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which has stopped, I think, about three million gun sales and transfers since it was uh, since it came about in the 1990s. Now, understand that 80 percent of firearms used for criminal purposes are obtained without a background check. So, you know, the arguments about this doesn't matter at all. I I think those fall short when you got 80 percent of these firearms not being obtained by a background check. The act is aimed at reducing arms trafficking and helping law enforcement trace these guns. And here's a big number. Ninety seven percent of Americans support this kind of legislation, Democrats and Republicans. And this is according to Giffords, which is a anti-gun violence advocacy group. Now, we have 97 percent of Americans supporting it. However, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, has refused to allow a debate or to vote or a vote on this legislation. And I just want to speak specifically to, to Mr. McConnell and say, cut the recess short and bring that legislation to the to the floor of the Senate for a debate and a vote. That needs to happen immediately if you are serious. And I think other Republican senators have an obligation to put some pressure on him to do that. Don't just sit around. You were elected just like everybody else. Don't just sit around and leave it to, to the leadership or leave it, leave it to others to actually force uh, McConnell's hand. Go out and make something happen. No one in no none of these uh, elected officials have any excuse for not doing more about this issue. And then finally, Mr. President, cut it out. You know, your rhetoric and your tone are hurting the people that you're responsible for protecting. Whether it's a matter of uh, you trying to rally your base, whether it's a matter of you not having a lot of uh, emotional discipline and emotional maturity, whatever it is, it needs to stop. Protecting Americans is much more important than clapping back or getting your base riled up. And until uh, people see that, until his party and people around him and uh, uh, the uh, Christians that voted for him put pressure on him to stop doing that, 
then we all have some level of responsibility for what's going on. Yeah, I think on the first background check, Bill, I agree with you, Justin, this should receive a vote. Obviously, I think it's a democratic crisis when you have an issue that receives 90% of support from the American people and yet cannot even be considered uh, in in the Senate because of special interests and their alignment with political power. That is a crisis of governance. That's a crisis of representation right there. I think we've seen that Senator McConnell doesn't seem to care much for those types of concerns uh, and so I think you're you're right. His fellow Republicans in the Senate need to need to make him care. And just just to be clear, you don't need to support the bill in order to think that it needs a vote. You don't need to support background checks, though you should, in order to think, hey, do you know what? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, we are a, a nation that's facing some really serious crises, and this is one approach at addressing uh, this crisis. And it deserves expression. It deserves expression through the political process. And even though I'm going to vote against it, it deserves a vote, just like measures that, uh, you know, the, these other senators might think, you know, Josh Howley, for instance, in Missouri is pushing this bill on uh, social social media, sort of a, a more uh, putting in place legal restrictions around how social media companies operate. That, that, that may not pass. That deserves a vote to a much like if that deserves a vote, like if there's a there's a national conversation about social media and we we should we should see constructive efforts uh, receive consideration like Holly's bill on an issue like that. Certainly, certainly we can get a vote on legislation that represents a view supported by 90 percent of Americans. The, the, the second thing I want to say is I do want to give voice to and at, at least say out loud that I understand among more conservative friends, particularly Trump supporters, that you might be watching a certain news station, you might be receiving things on your Facebook feed. President Trump had some a couple public statements related to this, uh, where he uh, said that he was against hate. He said that, you know, we need to do the things we need to do to make sure this never happens again. Various White House staffers have called for uh, unity and coming together. And, you know, I, I, I understand that some of y'all might be seeing that and say, and the Democratic sort of liberal response is, look, there are all these calls for him to act more responsibly, but when he does, it's not good enough uh, for y'all anyways. I, I want to say that I hear that. I understand that. Um, it's it's also the problem of getting behind a president who attained power through rhetoric that's dehumanizing, uh, rhetoric that tears apart at the, the seams of this country. In other words, you can't just turn on a switch. And when you've undermined your credibility, when you've undermined your ability in political moments, sort of to win election, to just sort of rile up sort of uh, your base at, at campaign events, when you've undermined your moral authority in those moments, because they don't seem to be as weighty, you, you can't see oh, how they might relate to events uh, in the future, or, you know, in, in a lot of cases, events in the past. Uh, 
when you undermine your moral authority in that way, it's not something that you could just snap back in. It's not something that that you uh, that you can just call upon when there's no no stored up trust with the American people. And so, so yes, I, I, I want to acknowledge. Uh, uh, this president has said some words that might be uh, uh, approaching what we would sort of the baseline of what we might expect from uh, from the president of the United States in this moment. But I would also ask folks to acknowledge the fact that that the character of the man saying them matters and the history of the man saying them matters. And that's it's not an unfair thing to pretend uh, it's not an unfair thing to understand that this is a president with with a history and and in particular as we talked about the El Paso shooter I mean you just read the manifesto it's it's just strikingly clear that there is a an ecosystem of ideas uh, that the president has contributed contributed to that this shooter drew from that this shooter was breathing in uh, that is not as vice president biden said that's not to blame president trump for this shooting but it but it is to say that he has a level of responsibility for the culture in this country and for the ideas that are uh, being seen to have oxygen and to have merit within the public square and those that do not. And unfortunately, this president has all too often given credence to ideas and sentiments about fellow Americans uh, that, that should not be given credence. I agree. Um, and we have to, you know, at the end campaign, we want to make sure that we at least cover both sides of a conversation. Right. And so we, we don't we try not to create false equivalences, but we do try to cover both sides. So one of the things that I tried to do, Michael, was I traveled over to the National Rifle Association's website, the NRA website, to see what they had to say about this legislation. And the article that I found on that website was entitled What Lurks Behind Universal Background Checks? And uh, the beginning of this article states that while the United States government was still partially shut down, uh, anti-gun members of the United States House of Representatives decided to focus on gun control rather than ensuring that the country has a functional government. So the first thing that we see here is the downplay. We see people downplaying the actual need for gun control legislation as if that's not almost just as important as the functioning government side of things when people are, people are getting killed. Uh, so that's the first thing we see. Then it goes into a conversation about Nancy Pelosi. It calls her the arch anti-gunner uh, who quarterbacked the effort uh, to bring about some of this uh, this background check legislation. It talks about how the actual legislation was presented on the same day that uh, Representative Gabrielle Giffords was shot in Tucson, Arizona. Then it goes on to say, well, that's odd that they did it on this particular day because the person that was convicted of, of shooting Gifford got his gun from a licensed dealer. As if that means that background checks or this legislation is completely unnecessary because it didn't match perfectly with why Gifford got shot. Like, come, come on here. Um, they go on to say that the, you know, uh, that background checks are a matter of style more than substance. 
they say that criminals are going to get guns without going through this process, which to some extent may, may be true, and that mass murderers usually don't uh, have criminal histories and they haven't gone through state mandated health treatment, which is to say that they may not even show up on these particular uh, background checks. OK, um, in order for the and so they're saying that even the Obama administration, it goes on to say that in order for these background checks to be effective, you need a comprehensive national registry of firearms, which they are saying would lead to confiscation. Right. Um, and, and this is where we start to see this narrative come together. But just because background checks alone will not stop gun deaths doesn't mean that we should that we shouldn't take that step, right? When children are dying, like we see that happening this weekend and, and all, you know, all year and for the last few years, all too often, we must take all sensible measures that can have an impact. So saying just because this won't end it by itself, we shouldn't do it is ridiculous. That's just not a good way to govern. It's not responsible. Uh, The article then goes on to state this. It says that universal background checks, while inconsequential to public safety, so we've gone completely to inconsequential, um, are a necessary piece of an overall puzzle that will transform the U.S. right to keep and bear arms into a European-style privilege reserved for wealthy elite, um, reserved for the wealthy elite who can afford to comply with burdensome bureaucratic procedures to acquire firearms. Wow. So we took background checks, which is a sensible, um, uh, a sensible step that most Americans, by far most Americans agree with and turned it into the first step of confiscating everybody's guns. Right. It has to be the first step towards that. Um, and the first thing about that, that comment that really makes me mad is not the first thing. But one thing that I'll point out before I get more into the narrative is for conservatives and progressives to stop using poor people to further their narratives. That's called exploitation. You didn't you didn't need to come in here and talk about, oh, only the elites will have guns. This is harming poor people that can't comply with the process. Get out of here. When you're talking about background checks, this isn't that long of a process. Something else that was part of the background checks is it would uh, they would wait 10 days before you could actually you know get the gun. So the process would be longer. Right. These are things that have that it's not necessarily about poor people, but stop using them to further your narrative. I think that's I think that's terrible. Now, the conservative stance is basically saying this, that when it comes to gun control, we're going to do nothing because the the things that they're doing only end up in confiscation. So, you know, they're saying that a lot of progressives just want to take our guns, which there may be some truth to that. There are progressives that said they do want to take your guns. However, that is not a justification to do nothing about guns. That's not a justification to say, hey, they want to do this. Therefore, we're not going to do anything. That is a terrible way to legislate. That's an irresponsible way to govern. You cannot govern that that way. You know, we hear them saying that, you know, only the bad the bad people aren't going to go through the process um, and the good people are and the good people are going to be the ones that don't have guns. Dude, you it's all of this is a way of just not addressing the danger of guns, staying away from the danger of guns. It's a narrative. Stay away from the danger of guns and also not addressing the problem of white nationalism. I don't, I don't see that being addressed. I see all these ways to kind of avoid that conversation, 
right? So much of American politics today has become a battle to maintain these dangerously flawed narratives. Now, narratives, just so you understand, uh, folks who are listening, narratives are stories and storylines and, nar- and narratives are important. They're not bad. They're not always wet bad, but narratives are important because they provide context and they help us understand history. They help us understand present realities and potential future dynamics. But narratives can become dangerous when they don't conform to the facts or they ignore outside. Fa- they ignore factors that are outside of the narrative. So, for example, in this case, we have conservatives who are basing their entire position on the narrative that progressives just want to confiscate their guns. And that keeps them from from supporting any sensible regulations because it's always a step towards confiscation. Well, that's a narrative. That's not a fact. And it ignores the and it ignores what happens when we don't have regulations. So even if there's a kernel of truth there, because some again, as I said, some progressives do want to confiscate guns. Some have said as much Uh, that should not keep us from sensible, sensible regulations. And similarly, we see this on the other side with with the abortion conversation. Right. Some pro-life people do want to outlaw all abortions in all cases. But that should never be that should never convince anyone to remove restrictions like we to remove all the restrictions like we see in New York and like we saw in Illinois earlier this year. Right. Too often we hang on to our narratives at great costs. Sometimes we just have to acknowledge that life and some of these major issues are more complicated than we would like to admit. And we're not going to have a clean narrative. And the reason that we want clean narratives, because clean narratives are easier to persuade people. But when we hang on to a narrative, when it's going against the facts or when it's going against other realities, then we're actually hurting our argument and we're hurting people. Yeah. Right. And a lot yeah, of, you know, uh, yeah. go ahead. Justin, you struck on something really important, which is, uh, you, you know, you and I, uh, well, well I'll, speak, I'll speak for myself, though, though uh, you know, I consider uh, I'm, I'm someone who's tried to argue uh, that the Democratic Party should take its position of leadership with with a sense that they represent the whole country, not just Democrats. And, and part of what that means to me is that when you attain power, you don't necessarily go for every policy that, that you can just muster up enough Democrats to support, uh, because there is a representative aspect to, to what you're doing. And you want to be able to lead the country in a way that can hold together. And that's not about more than just getting everything that you want with whatever power you're able to attain. It is much harder, much more difficult for that argument to win out when the opposition from from scratch, from the jump, is expressing and showing through their leadership a complete disinterest in carrying carrying out their role in the same way. A complete disinterest in public service, in representing the people, in actually allowing issues to come up for debate in, in a way that respects the process uh, as much, if not more, as you just respect your own ideology and trying to, again, use, maximally use your power to advance your ideology, it it becomes much harder within the Democratic Party. And we're seeing this now uh, to tell people, you know, we may not want to pursue laws like Illinois and New York on abortion, or 
you know, when we're able to act on guns, we should act in a way that is cognizant of the fears and concerns of uh, of conservative gun holders because we represent them too. And we don't want to create a situation in this country where folks feel embattled and feel like, uh, feel like there are, you know, worse fears that as you just read, their worst fears are being cultivated by groups like NRA for NRA's own good and self-interest. We may want to make sure that we move forward on these issues in a way that involves discussion and involves moderation. There is a growing uh, spirit and perspective in the Democratic Party that says, why would we do that? We got Mitch McConnell in the Senate who holds up everything. If we get a chance to pass legislation uh, by somehow working around Mitch McConnell, we better get as much of the pie as we can because uh, soon enough we won't have that opportunity anymore. And so all of that to say for earnest conservatives who are concerned about Democrats going overboard, concerned about sort of democratic extremism, quote unquote, I want you to consider the fact that certainly Democrats are responsible for their own actions. I want you to consider the fact that it is the tactics and in my view, the the undemocratic approach to much of governing uh, really represented by Mitch McConnell, but the other Republicans have have brought into. I mean, Mitch McConnell is the guy they keep on uh, voting to represent the caucus and lead the caucus. Uh, th- th- it is actually that kind of politics, the kind of politics that doesn't let Merrick Garland even get a hearing, the kind of politics that doesn't let a background check bill with 90% of the American people's support get a vote. It's that kind of politics that fuels the cases of the folks on the far left of the Democratic Party. Uh, And so if you don't want that, you also shouldn't want an undemocratic uh, Republican Senate uh, that operates in a way that doesn't let uh, issues with broad support even get a discussion, right? I mean, this isn't even about a filibuster. Mitch McConnell isn't allowing a cloture vote on this thing. it's, it's, It's abhorrent. Yeah, like I said, that goes exactly with what I said at the beginning, which was the onus right now is on the Republican Party, specifically on Republican senators. You all are leaders. And see, it's so it's so crazy. It's not funny, but it's so crazy that everybody and this is on both sides, the House and the Senate. They hide behind the administration. They hide behind the leaders. But then when they go out and talk to you, they're the leader. When they're running for office, I'm a leader. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But when it comes time to move, now you're hiding behind Mitch McConnell. Right. Now I'm hiding behind the administration. No, you're a leader. You were put in office just like everybody else. The onus right now is on the Republican Senate to do something about this. You could really heal if you set aside the politics of it, set aside what the extreme and the base may want you to do. You could really help heal this country by stepping up and being the leader that you were taught to be. By stepping up and being the leader, I I believe a lot of these folks enter into this believing that they want to do the right thing. And they may have disagreements based on the foundation of their ideology, but believing I want to do the right thing. When you were in college, when you were in high school and you were maybe more idealistic, what did you believe that you would do when you had to make the tough decision? We'll make that tough decision now. This is the moment where it counts and history is watching you. 
people are watching the decisions that you make. And if you want to if you want to be somebody that's a statesman, you want to be somebody that has integrity in your tenor. It's time to do something about it. And I, I do think the onus is on on this particular issue is on Senate Republicans and everybody needs to be watching them and pressing them to do the right thing. But again, this comes back to narrative. And a lot of people get upset with the end campaign because we refuse to support a narrative to the extent where it's hurting people. The facts, the truth, compassion and principles must always be more important than any narrative. If you if you look at Jesus's life and when he interacted with people, there were very few narratives that got past him that that proved to be pure. Right. Most of them uh, proved to be not so pure. And so we cannot hold on to narratives to the point where they are actually destructive. And we see that happening a lot. And while the onus, again, is on the Republicans, I will say that the the Democrats and progressives, their narrative here isn't completely accurate. It's not completely helpful either. And I'll ask this question just to set it up. Why is it that nationally Democrats, we primarily focus on the mass shootings when some of our major cities are experiencing devastating gun violence every day. Just this summer, 72 people have been shot, 13 people killed in Chicago. Almost 300 people have been murdered in Chicago this year. Two mothers, and this this just happened, I think, a, a week or so ago. Two mothers who were advocates against gun violence were shot and murdered in Chicago, and you barely heard a peep about it nationally. And, and why is that? Part of the reason is we don't want to talk about it because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the narrative that gun violence is all about white nationalism. Now, we need to deal with white nationalism in a real way, and some of these shootings are absolutely about that. But it's not all about that. And it's also not purely about uh, purely a product of poverty either. We Yes, poverty and trauma make people more prone to violence. These are serious issues that we need to deal with. And I think the AND campaign has proved, proven that we're going to have conversations about this and we're going to push people to deal with those issues. I take nothing away from those issues. Um, the stresses of poverty in underserved areas make people more, uh, make it more probable that people will do a lot of things that they otherwise wouldn't do. But let me say this. Be very careful with with that narrative, be very careful because most poor people are not homicidal. Be very careful because most poor people are not criminals in general. And so progressives need to be very careful with labeling them in that way just to support a narrative. Let's not let's not further hurt poor people by pretending that all of them are homicidal or that they're somehow completely incapacitated because we run the ri- when we push that narrative, we run the risk of further stereotyping them, not for not only further stereotyping poor people, but dehumanizing poor people. We got to be careful that the, uh, this is not just a matter of poverty, because there are people who are poor that can think very well, that have good sense, that are that are wise, that do the right thing, even in, in spite of their circumstances. So let's let's not paint all poor people like they're homicidal because you get into this determinism, right, where you think everything's determined by your circumstances. That's not exactly true. That's not exactly how it works. Culture also matters. And I'm not talking specifically about race. I'm talking about culture. Right. The culture in a particular city matters. 
It's not simply about poverty, although that has a significant role to play. Go talk to pastors who minister in these areas. Don't just talk to academics. Don't just talk to activists. Go talk to pastors who live in these areas. Go talk to the old people who are almost afraid to come out of their houses who live in these areas. And since they're not, they're more worried about surviving than the actual, than the actual narrative, they will tell you that culture is a serious component of what is going on, right? Not every kid that comes that are doing these shootings, not every person that are doing these shootings are coming from abject poverty. Some of these are people and and this isn't part of the narrative and people can get mad at this. Some of these folks are people who willfully chose a certain lifestyle because they embraced a certain culture. But we don't want to have that conversation. We don't want to talk about all these different murders in these big cities. We have, I think, almost 200 murders already in Baltimore. I don't care what Trump says about Baltimore. I care about the people. So I'm not going to ignore the facts. I'm not going to act like this isn't a terrible situation just because Trump has something stupid to say about it. That is a narrative allowing us not to fix a problem. This is a problem. Poverty is a part of it. Um, being underserved is a part of it. But culture is all also a part of it. And the people who don't want to talk about that, I have to question whether they're really caring about the people or do they care more so about the narrative? And, and we need to make sure that we're more focused in on the truth, on principles, on compassion, and not as much on the narrative. Yeah. Well, uh, we need to head to a break, but I think that's exactly right. Uh, I get just the one thing I'd add uh, is uh, just to go back to the background check uh, bill. And President Trump actually just tweeted out, as I believe as we've been recording, uh, uh, here, let me just read the read the tweets live, uh, you know, live for us. Uh, we cannot let those killed in El Paso and Dayton die in vain. Likewise, for those so seriously wounded, we can never forget them and those uh, many who came before them. Republicans and Democrats must come together and get strong background checks, perhaps marrying this legislation with desperately needed immigration reform. We must have something good, if not great, come out of these two tragic events. Uh, and so opening the door to background check, uh, uh, background check legislation, uh, but tying it, as he has done so much else, with, uh, with uh, moving forward his agenda, uh, I would presume, on immigration, as if, as if that's necessary. And so what this provides is, is an opening for uh, someone like Susan Collins, who's up for re-election. Uh, someone like Cory Gardner, who represents Colorado, which has had significant shootings in recent years, uh, also up for election. Uh, someone like uh, Mark McSally, who represents Arizona, uh, where there was the shooting in Tucson, uh, who's up for re-election in 2020. Uh, for them to take the opening that President Trump has offered now by announcing his support for consideration of background checks, and just saying, do you know what? We don't need to pair this with anything. Background checks have been uh, uh, legislation and an issue that has been hard enough to deal with on its own. Let's consider this separately in response to the recent tragedies. And we could also deal with immigration uh, separately. Uh, and we'll see if uh, these Republican senators who are up for re-election uh, are able to show leadership, if not out of just pure commitment to to statesmanship and to doing their jobs, then maybe to convincing some of their, uh, some of their, uh, some of the voters in their state that they uh, are willing to, as Justin said, 
uh, actually be leaders and not just hide behind Mitch McConnell. Um, all right, let, let, let's take a, a quick break. When we get back, we're going to discuss the uh, Democratic debates uh, from last week. Uh, thanks for listening. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, last week, uh, we saw the second round of debates in the Democratic primary. Uh, we still, there were you know 20 candidates split over two nights. Uh, some candidates who are still in the race were not able to make the debate stage, but we saw 20 candidates. Uh, and interested in what you thought of of these debates we you know i, I think again as we discussed uh, on our last episode you know i do think really suffered from not having the four front runners uh on the stage together uh there was some benefit in making sure that there were at least two of the four front runners on each stage by the way that cnn split it up but you know on the first night we had elizabeth warren a uh, bernie uh, second night, we had Biden and Kamala. Cory Booker was also in that second night and made, a, I think, a significant showing for himself. They were interesting debates, though. The first night, more substantive. The second night, definitely more conflict-driven. I think Biden showed up stronger than he was uh, in the first round of debates, although he set a pretty low, low bar for himself. And uh, in many ways, I think it's... Kamala Harris is going to have to do some, uh, the kind of cleanup and reassurance that Biden had to do after the first round of debates. I think Harris showed some some cracks in the armor as she faced incoming, not just from Joe Biden, but from Tulsi Gabbard and some of the other candidates on stage with her in, in a way that, you know, does, it isn't a death knell for her, her candidacy, but, but definitely showed weaknesses that really up to this point, uh, you know, a- as a politician, uh, she hadn't really shown. So, you know, those are my my big takeaways. Uh, the polling immediately after the debates continue to show Biden in the lead. One national poll has Biden with uh, a two to one advantage over his uh, over the second place uh, candidate at this point. Uh, Biden had thirty four. Bernie Sanders had seventeen. I believe uh, Harris was, I think, in fourth in that poll, but number two through four, they're all pretty tightly bunched together between 10 and 17%. Uh, and so, you know, I think I think Biden didn't accomplish everything. I don't think anybody left those debates thinking, oh, you know, Biden's a lock, but he did uh, stop the bleeding. He had some donors leave him after the first debate. I don't, I don't think he'll have a, a mass exodus after his performance in in the second debate. And now we head to September, which will be very different debate format. Uh, the, the standards for making the debates have gone up. Most people who look at this believe that there will only be 10 to 12 candidates who make the debate stage in the next round. And so this is going to get whittled 
down in a significant way. But but just interested, well, what did you think of the debate? Yeah. So in the first debate, uh, what stuck out to me was uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. I think the progressive side of it really stuck out. It was more substantive, as you pointed out. So they were really getting to policy and talking about policy. And the thing was, it made the moderates on that stage looked look inept. Like they just didn't have the skill to break through, you know, what was coming from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Uh, they, they just weren't on their toes. I think they had opportunities, but they just don't have that communicator that can get through uh, uh, to the to the audience and really kind of refute what's coming from those those two more progressive candidates. But one of the things it did do is it did make them or highlight how far left they are. I mean, it really even made me more uncomfortable because we, you know, we've been talking about Elizabeth Warren and kind of uh, giving her a little bit of praise for being more substantive when it comes to policy. Uh, but that debate, although in, in that the moderates were unable to really do what they needed to do to to, to call to question them being so far left, it, it did make them seem even more far left to me. And I just left that kind of really uncomfortable with how far left they were. And, it, and part of it be, is because they communicated it so well, but it was it was still very far left. Right. And so I was like, whoa, it just kind of highlighted it to me. So that that's what I left that debate feeling. But I appreciated that it was more substantive. Uh, what stuck out to me in the second debate, as far as the second day of debate, I should say, the second day of the second group of deba- debates, was Tulsi Gabbard was the best thing that happened to Biden uh, this 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 whole time, right? Her her attacks were just just really hit home on uh, Kamala Harris, and Harris is going to have to find a way to deal with that because there's a lot more ammo where that came from. So we'll see if she, she finds a way to deal with it. I mean, it's one thing to dish it out. And we saw uh, Harris really dish it out to Biden uh, the first time. It's a whole nother thing to take it and to be the target of a very targeted and well communicated uh, attack. And I don't think it was an unfair attack. I mean, I, th- I think it brought up questions that she's going to have to answer. Uh, but we'll see if she can get to that answer. I, you also have to bring up, I think, that Cory Booker did a pretty good job. Uh, he he kind of went at Biden a little bit, and I think he got the best of Biden. However, it opened, although I don't think Biden hit it the way that he should have, it opened up some of the vulnerability. You got to see a little bit of the vulnerability of Booker and his his record as mayor. You know, as we go further and further left, as we talk about law enforcement, some of these folks that have actually had to govern, they may want to watch how far they go because governing is very different. And so he comes into a situation where I don't know that he did a bad job. But he had to support his his law enforcement, right? Because he was in a situation where you had a lot of different murders. He did have a law he did have some law enforcement folks who were somewhat corrupt. But he had to show them some support. So he he supported stop and frisk uh, to a certain extent. He didn't just end it right away. And so there are some questions about Booker, and he's going to have to decide: Is he going to keep going left when it comes to law enforcement and these conversations? Because if he does, it's going to bring up some vulnerability that he some vulnerabilities that he had, and not that he did a bad job. It's just the reality of trying to be a man and somebody who's you know the somebody who's the executive and to get things done and we don't want to go away from that reality and i think that's one of the places where the democrats suffer you cannot talk about crime as if there are no robbers right you can't talk about crime as if there aren't people who need to be locked up and who need to be taken off the streets to protect others 
I feel the Democrats are creeping into that conversation where we act like we're not going to really talk about the bad guys. We're just going to act like there's good guys. Kamala Harris suffers from from some of that, too. And so the further left that conversation goes, the people who've actually had to make decisions uh, in the real world are hurt by that conversation. The other thing that stood out for me, and I thought this was a low point uh, of the debates, and it might have been Elizabeth Warren who used it first. You may correct me if not, was the talking point that that's just a Republican talking point. Right. So anytime somebody got questioned to give the specifics on Medicare or one of these policies that is free everything and somebody says, well, the numbers don't work for that or, you know, uh, how are we going to pay for that or whatever? Oh, that's just a Republican talking point. That's not an answer. Right. Maybe it is a Republican talking point. Well, it's a good one. And you need to answer the question. You need to flesh out how it's going to be paid for, how we can make all this work, uh, things like that. And and I, I will give CNN so much credit and I'm hard on the media sometimes, but they pointed that out that that was, you know, they really called that out to say that's not an answer to the question. So thank you to the journalists who said, no, no, no. And the commentators who are like, no, 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 that's not an answer. And they talked about it enough that hope, hopefully during this primary, we will not hear, oh, that's just a Republican talking point anymore. And we'll actually get to the meat of the conversation. But those are the things that stuck out to me. In addition to, I think Gillibrand really hurt herself. I think she was the one person whose attack against Biden just fell completely flat. And I think it may have ended uh, ended that campaign or the legitimacy of that campaign. I hope so. I mean, I, mean, I just think she's run an awful campaign. I think she's better than the campaign that she's run. Uh, it, it's actually been kind of... I, I, so Gillibrand was my home state senator. She's someone who... Uh, we have some mutual friends uh, in common. She's someone who's done work with the faith community. Uh, it, it, it's been, uh, you know, sad to see her try and, you know, try a number of things in order to get momentum and get a little bit of attention to try and get some energy behind her campaign that I just think are, are, are out of character for her. So I, I think she, she, along with, you know, but many other of the candidates need to think about whether they want to drop out if they can't make this this September deadline. The one other thing I'd say, Justin, is related to the crime conversation. Uh, you know, it, it, it just struck me watching the debate, you know, how interesting it is when people uh, want context and, and when these candidates don't, right? So, you know, Cory Booker had all the, well, you got to understand the situation I was walking into and, you know, the various dynamics I had. <laughs> but we didn't hear any of that appreciation for context from Cory Booker when it came to talking about the other candidates' records and, and decisions Joe Biden made in, in 1970s. And obviously the same kind of critique goes you know, these debates sometimes, especially when you have uh, tw- 20 candidates, uh, th- th- these people are just happy to make the, the critique, even if it doesn't make much sense, you know, and doesn't hold up under, at, at least not hold up as well under uh, greater scrutiny. And so, you know, hopefully we'll have a bit more time to talk about context and for folks to just be a little uh little it's why character matters so much uh, when you're looking at these things uh it's why you know considering the full history of candidates matters so much just because it's 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 hard to go back to a place in time whether it's uh 
and this is not to say records don't matter, but you know whether it's uh, Harris in uh, AG's office or district attorney or Joe Biden or Cory Booker as mayor, it's hard to go back to a particular place in time and understand uh, all of the dynamics that went into making a decision. There comes a point when you just have to have like a, a level of trust to uh, and. Oh, or distrust that says, do you know what? I trust that this person did the, the best that they could guided by values that they espoused in, in the situation that was given to them. Or you just may not have that. And it's that's why so many of these, uh, especially who you're going to vote for, uh, you got to consider the record. You got to consider everything. But it's, at some level, it's a gut level, gut level thing. Do I trust that this person will do the right thing uh, given you know, the complicated, uh, uh, multifaceted decisions that go to the president's desk. And, and that's why, you know, this, this vetting process of, you know, a, a two-year presidential campaign, you know, can be helpful. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And just be realistic. You know, sometimes you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. Be realistic. Sometimes we struggle too much to, to have an attack. Rather than saying, look, I'm the best candidate. I have the best solutions. We're reaching with these attacks. And, and I agree with you. Yeah, which is the good thing that Elizabeth Warren, you know, did, which is, you know, I've, I've often had the critique of Elizabeth Warren that she's, you know, very conflict driven. But what stuck out to me at these debates was, well, so many of the other candidates were sniping at fellow Democrats. Uh, Warren refused to do that and instead, you know, kept her focus trained on who she considers to be you know, enemies, which again, I'm not sure if uh, I'm all the way there with her, with some of her rhetoric about, uh, you know, corporations, big business, etc. But you got to think that in a democratic primary where the focus is on beating Trump and where sort of uh, uh, negative views about Republicans are so high uh, that she might gain some real, some real credit for keeping her sights trained on uh, who, who, who she thinks are like, you know, the, the main culprits of um, what's, hold, you know, quote unquote, holding America back right now. We've, we've covered a lot. It's been kind of an intense episode. There's obviously so much more we could have discussed. We're going to track to see. I think this background check uh, bill will, will be a major conversation, a topic of conversation this week. Uh, Mitch McConnell is not someone known or, you know, with a history of bringing the Senate back into session to meet sort of uh, moments like this. But we'll see if pressure builds in a way that that he, he feels like he has to. We we are at the beginning of the August recess, which might um, which, which might, you know, uh, affect uh, the decision there. But we'll we'll obviously keep track of that. And then. You know, folks, just keep an eye out. Uh, August is always a crazy month in presidential campaigns. Uh, uh, Something about, uh, you know, folks being on vacation, something about there not being much else to fill up the the news because Congress is out. Uh, August, especially in recent cycles, is historically a a kind of... um, uh, a, a crazy month in presidential campaign. So who knows what's going to happen? Uh, Justin, any closing thoughts for the episode? Yeah, just this. I'll stay on topic. Um, Senate Republicans, this is your moment. Uh, anyone who is thinking about running for higher office one day, anyone who claims to be a leader, this is your moment to do the right thing and to act. 
And it doesn't have to be the background check legislation, but it has to be something substantive. So we'll be waiting. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, thanks for hanging in there. I know it's been a difficult weekend. Hopefully we were able to help help you process some of what's going on. Uh, we'd love for you to stay in touch. Let us know what you're thinking over Twitter. Leave a review on iTunes. Uh, until next week, uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed one. Y'all take care. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame.